So now, if you'd all like to turn with me to Galatians 5, verses 1 to 12. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Luke, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little... A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This will be the day... This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom reign. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom reign. From the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania, let freedom reign. From the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado, let freedom reign. From the curvaceous slopes of California, but not only that, let freedom reign. From Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, We will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. That's my ringtone. Freedom is a very precious thing. It's um, something to be fought for, something to be treasured. And as we turn again to Galatians this evening, we see that straight away, this is the concern of the Apostle Paul. Let freedom ring. Look down at verse 1 again, please. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This letter, as we've looked at it, it's been a war of words. Paul was writing to 
a church that he had founded, but who were now being led astray. They're being told that in order to be accepted by God, they had to work for that. There are rules they have to keep in order to earn God's favor and to stay in his favor. That's what they're being told. And Paul writes to say, no, that's not true. We don't have to work for God. We don't have to do anything apart from believe in Jesus, trust him. That's how the Christian life starts, and that's how it goes on, by grace alone, through faith alone. And as he presents these two sides of the argument, what we've been seeing is nothing less than freedom is on the line. This is not just an academic argument about theology. This is not, you know, you say tomato, I say tomato, let's call the whole thing off, a difference of opinion, let's agree to disagree. Sorry, let's, yes, agree to disagree. Paul says that on his side of the argument, there is freedom, and with the other guys, there is slavery. And so for us as well, as we engage with this letter and this passage this evening, that's the choice that we face this evening. If you're here and you're still making your mind up about Jesus, what he offers isn't just a little bit of a better life, a little tweak here and there, some support. Jesus says that only he can set a human being truly free. But also, if you'd say that you are a Christian already, that's still the choice that we face. Think about who Paul's writing to. Look at verse 1 again. As he writes to the Christians, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's saying to the Christians, don't drift back into the slavery of relating to God through your own performance. And so he talks about this choice, this risk that we face. But what is he actually on about? What is freedom in Christ? What is the slavery that he's warning us about? We've reached a point in the letter this evening when we can pause and really zoom in on what those ideas mean, on how it feels to be free in Jesus or to live in slavery For the last little bit, he's been arguing in a a detailed way about the Old Testament, trying to show that God has always been a God of grace and always a God of promise, never a God of works and earning. But here he he pauses, It's, it's been detailed, but here he just steps back and states his conclusion. And so it's a good point for us to pause as well and try and zoom in on what he's really saying and what it means for us in our lives. So that's what we're going to do. And then a little bit later on, we're going to have a proper look through verses 1 to 12. So first of all, what is freedom in Christ? Well, if you look at the service sheet, I've I've tried to sum up my answer to that question in a sentence. But actually, before we look at that, it would be helpful just to remind ourselves briefly again of the two messages that the Galatians were hearing On the one hand, you have Paul's position, which is expressed in words like grace and faith and spirit. When a person trusts in Jesus, has faith there, united to him in a way that the perfect righteousness of Jesus is credited into their account, and their sin in the other direction is swapped onto him, and he bears it in his death on the cross. And faith, therefore, means a completely new beginning, a life in union with Christ, and he puts his spirit inside of us, 
And each day he's working to transform us, to grow us into, so that we are in practice as righteous as we are already in status. That's Paul's message, grace, faith, spirit. And it's important that we understand these words. It's nearly Christmas, like we started thinking about, and so we haven't got that many weeks left in Galatians. And it's important for us as Bible readers, as those as thinking people, to understand the kind of big, important words that the Bible uses, grace, faith, spirit. That's Paul's message. Whereas on the other side, we've seen that there are people we have called the legalists. We've called them that because they say that, actually, in order to be accepted by God, you need to keep certain laws. Faith is not enough. Laws, that's why they're called legalists. And we've also called these people the Judaizers because the particular laws that they've been advocating are the Jewish laws of the Old Testament, circumcision, the festivals, and that sort of thing. They're saying you need to add to faith obedience and works, and then God will accept you. That's the message of the Judaizers. And that means effort in yourself from your own flesh. You, your effort, you need to work hard to keep the rules and thereby be acceptable and on side with God. It's really important as we come to the end of the letter that we understand ideas like this. Faith, not works. The spirit at work in us, not the flesh. Us working ourselves, our own efforts. And if, as we head towards the end of these weeks in Galatians, if this is still just jargon to you, then it's a great opportunity this evening to ask. But for us now, what we need to think about is the kind of life that these opposing views would lead to. This is what we're going to do. We're going to pause and think about the freedom on the one hand and the slavery on the other. Because Paul says that's what it comes down to. Grace, faith, spirit, that kind of a gospel leads to freedom, whereas legalists will bring you into slavery. Now, what does he mean? Let's look at the sentence. It's on the sheet. I've tried to sum it up. Freedom in Christ means receiving forgiveness and change from God like a child instead of working for those things like a slave. That's not a short sentence, so let me read it again. Freedom in Christ means receiving forgiveness and change from God like a child instead of working for those things like a slave. When we adopt the legalistic outlook, trying to earn God's favor by keeping the rules, that is slavery. Because all the time I'm thinking, I wonder if I've lived a good enough life. I wonder if I've done well enough at keeping the rules. You know, I I messed up. I had that row at home. I gave in to temptation. And whenever we're conscious of our own selfishness and failings, it gives rise to fear. Because maybe I'm not good enough for God. Maybe he will cast me out. And will therefore set about the servitude of trying to rack up enough heaven points so that in the end, we'll be all right. And Paul says that is a life of slavery. And yet it is a common way to live. I remember talking to a friend of mine who he, his, he grew up in Pakistan. Um, his parents were missionaries there in the old days. And um, his dad was talking about how he used to speak to Muslim friends there about the gospel. 
Uh, and he described the burden that many of them felt because these were sincere people. They understood, they felt their own faults. And yet they had been taught that they had to balance those things out by working a good life and good deeds, keeping the rules in order that God would accept them in the end. And he used to ask people, this is his little illustration, if there is poison in the mug, how much sugar do I have to add before it's okay to drink? Do you see the point of that? If there is evil in us, how much good do I have to do to balance it out? And these people would say, being honest, I, I don't know. I never know. I just have to keep on working and keep on trying. And that's slavery, isn't it? The lifelong burden of trying to earn God's favor. And sadly, that's how religion is for many people. I remember when the old pope died, there was a lot of that kind of talk his funeral, and people said, well, maybe a man like that, maybe, just maybe, he might be accepted. You know, he'd gone to church a lot of times and said the right prayers a lot of times, and maybe he would be accepted, maybe. And I remember that made me really sad. These folks with the scriptures, in some sense, right in front of them, but living in slavery, trying to earn their way to God and bear the burden of that. And of course, it's, it's not just out there, is it? In in churches like this, with people like us, it's easy to drift back into the slavery of trying to earn our way to God. I'm sure we will have felt that if we're Christians here tonight. You can see it in the rules that we add on to the Bible about what's okay or not okay for Christians to do. You can see it in our reluctance to pray when we're conscious of sin. We've mucked up and given into temptation. We think, well, I'll I need to kind of prove myself for a few days and then I can pray to him. Quickly becomes the burden, the slavery of trying to earn our way to God. The best um, thing I've ever read in describing how this feels uh, was written by a man um, called Jerry Bridges. He works with the Navigators and he, he writes in one of his books about being on the performance treadmill. He says that often... Christians have the idea that we're saved by God, okay, but then somehow we have to kind of pay him back by being good. And so we live on the performance treadmill. And when we do badly, you know, when we sin and give in to temptation, we let ourselves down, we feel dreadful. But then when things are going better, we feel great, and we get really puffed up with pride because I've read my Bible every day this week. I prayed every day. I... I was tempted, but I, I, and surely God's going to be just that little bit extra pleased with me. And you feel great. And, you, you know, you start to look down a little bit on other people who aren't doing quite so well as you until you fall. And then you're feeling crushed again. The performance treadmill. I, I wonder if that sounds familiar to you. I know, certainly I know how that feels. And if you do know how that feels, then you'll know with me how fitting is the word that Paul uses for this slavery because that in that mindset serving god is not a joy it's something that i have to do and so i have to grit my teeth and summon up my own strength and get on with it it's slavery 
And Paul says that it comes back to this theological mistake of relating to God through my performance instead of through Jesus. That is slavery. That is what it feels like. Whereas freedom is what we experience when we know that we're united with Jesus and perfect in him and accepted in him, forgiven in him, indwelled by his spirit, and it's a done deal. My relationship doesn't go up and down because it's fixed because I'm in Christ. It doesn't depend on me and my performance. It's fixed because it all depends on him and the identity I have in him. In Galatians, the other metaphor that is kind of mixed in with this idea of freedom is the idea of being one of God's children. If you were here last week, you'll remember that as the kind of slave child and the free child. The one belongs in the household, the other will be thrown out. And I think this idea of being a child in God's household, it really helps us to understand what this freedom feels like. Because if, if someone is a slave or a worker, then their place in the household is very much dependent on the things they do. So, I mean, uh, many of you here are workers or studying, and if you want the benefits of that, the salary, other benefits, you have to work for it, don't you? And you have to earn the acceptance and the approval of others. When you start a job, you're on probation, and so you have to perform, or else they won't let you continue. But being a child in a family isn't like that. At least, it's not meant to be like that. I know that life isn't always ideal. Because in a family, the relationships are not based on performance. They're based on identity. So our little Lizzie, she doesn't have to earn her board and lodgings from us by being useful around the house, which is a good job because she's not very useful. I used to joke that she, she was a good, like a, um, a, a draft excluder. Um, but she's not even good for that anymore because she moves around too much. But it's not, it's not because of her performance. We love her and care for her because of who she is. She's our daughter. It's unconditional. And as time goes by, we'll need to try to remember that, that it's unconditional, that she doesn't have to earn our approval. You know, she could be more or less sporty or more or less intelligent, and there will be times when she is pleasant and obedient and doing things that make us glad, and there will be times, I'm sure, when she's doing things that break our hearts. And as parents, we will need to try to love her just the same, because it doesn't depend on what she does. It's who she is. It's unconditional. And if we as flawed human parents fail in loving her that way, we can know that God won't fail in loving his children unconditionally. You start to see, you start to feel how that brings freedom. It's not the fear of being a slave with an insecure position when I might be cast out if I don't perform, trying all the time to earn and pay back his love. He loves you already. You're united with Jesus. And so however you've lived this week, he couldn't be more delighted with you. He'll hear you gladly, anytime. As a child, his spirit is inside you, working all the time to transform you, to bring out, to show more clearly the family likeness. And so your life will change. You'll start to serve him. But not as a, a drudgery, not because you have to. 
you start to serve him, start to change gladly because his spirit is inside you, changing your heart. Of course, still when we sin, we're sad, but it's not such a crushing blow because we always knew how bad we were. And when we make progress, it doesn't puff us up because we know that it's his work in us, really. I think that's where this this letter and this passage will probably, for most of us, where it'll bite if we already see ourselves as Christians. Because most of us would probably accept, you know, sign up to the idea that we're saved initially, we're forgiven by grace and not by, you know, ingratiating ourselves into God by doing anything in particular. But what about the way on? That's the start of the Christian life. Okay, but what about the way on? Do we really believe that it's all by grace, every step of the way, that we really don't have to pay him back. That we don't have to contribute. We can just keep on receiving and receiving and receiving like a child and not a slave. That's why I said in that sentence that freedom in Christ means receiving forgiveness and change. It's not just at the beginning, it's all the way through we receive forgiveness and change from God like a child instead of working for those things like a slave. And practice, what does this mean? It means you wake up in the morning and you thank God for your security in Christ. Lord, I thank you that you've made me your child. Now, please help me to live that out. Please change me by the power of your Spirit so that in what I say, what I think, how I feel, what I do, I show that family likeness. And when you pray like that, and when you live like that, you find you won't be floored by the setbacks and puffed up by the successes. It will be hard, and it will take your work, but you'll know that it's not ultimately your work, but his work underneath. Now, Next week, if you come back, Paul says more about what it means to walk by the Spirit, to bear the fruit of the Spirit as, uh, as we live this life of faith, not works, uh, as we trust in Him and not our own effort. Because maybe it sounds, from what I've said, like, well, all right, if God accepts unconditionally, let's do whatever. You know, we can sin as much as we want. That's what Paul goes on to. If you look down at 5.13, that's where we'll start next week. If you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's what he goes on to next week. Don't abuse your freedom. But this week his message is, your freedom is a precious thing. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. In the few minutes that we have left, let's have a quick look through 5, 1 to 12 and see how he makes that point. This way of life that Paul has in mind of walking in freedom, in security, and not in slavery is so precious. Please don't lose it. That point is made there in 5 verse 1. Don't submit again. Don't drift back into rule-keeping. But as we read on from verse 1, there are two points that really stand out. First, Paul says that slavery is really serious. It's extremely serious. Um, 
as we look down at verses 2 to 4, they show the stakes. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, it's very forceful. And all the way through, Paul's quite aggressive. He's saying, look, if you want to play the earning game, you better do it perfectly, because that would be the standard if it wasn't for grace. Verse 4, I think might be a kind of a, a pun. If you accept circumcision, you're severed from Christ. It might be a pun, but it's not a joke. It's very serious, because he's saying you can either trust in your moral attainment or in the grace of Jesus, and it can't be both. You have to choose. You have to choose. How are you relating to God, through Jesus or through your own performance? And if it's by works, you have fallen away from grace. The stakes are eternity. It's not when we... When we think about slavery and freedom and how it feels to live these two ways, it's not, I mean, it is about joy and it is about quality of life, but it's also just about life in the end as opposed to death. Because if we try to live trusting in our own works, if we try to earn standing with God, we won't manage it. And all we'll earn is eternal judgment. And Paul is urging his friends here not to fall into that trap. And so he really rattles them. If you look at verses 7 to 10, he piles on the pressure. These are bad people who are saying things to you. You should cleanse yourself from them like yeast. It's a picture from the Old Testament where once a year they would remove every speck of yeast from the house. He's saying, chuck these guys out. I'm sure you'll see things my way in the end. What they're saying is not from God. And then verse 12, I mean, it's aggressive. It might make us smile, but again, it's not a joke. You know, if you accept circumcision, I wish these guys would go all the way. They may as well. He's calling these people back from the brink. And so to us, Paul's words force us to say that if we find ourselves relating to God through our own performance if we recognize that feeling of being on the performance treadmill, that is not just suboptimal, it's really dangerous. We need to stop and think and come back to words like grace and faith and child and spirit because slavery is really serious. And then the second thing runs alongside that. Slavery is really serious, but it's also oddly attractive. The whole, when, you, when you step back from this, the whole argument's really weird. We could understand Paul is having to warn them not to fall into, um, I don't know, eating too much ice cream or unbridled sexual activity or hoarding all your money instead of being generous and giving it away. You know, we could understand... I, I, Look, I know that those things are attractive, but these are the reasons why not to go back to them. But Paul's saying, look, I know slavery is attractive, but do you see what I mean? It's absurd. Oh, Paul, please let me go back to slavery. I'm so drawn to that. But what he's saying is that 
this religious approach in life is actually, even though it's slavery, it's very attractive. Why? For one reason, in verse 11, it caters to our pride. Being a Christian is dead embarrassing. It means unconditional surrender to Jesus Christ. It means confessing that I've completely blown it in life and I need to die and be raised with Christ, a whole reboot, a new birth, start again, saying I I failed. I can't achieve moral standing on my own. I need to receive it. I need a bailout. I need a handout. That's Christianity, and frankly, it's embarrassing. And that's why legalism is attractive, because it says, no, no, you you can stand on your own two feet. I, I happen to know that God is looking for fine, upstanding people like you, who will keep the rules. I, I really think you can help him out with that. And we think, huh, maybe I could. And I could, I could do it better than that guy anyway. And our pride, that's what legalism plays to. That's why it's attractive. It's a respectable message about grown-up people standing on their own two feet and paying their own way. And that's why in verse 11, Paul says, but brothers, look, if I'm still preaching circumcision... Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. It's offensive to say that only Jesus, only his death, only union with him can save us and make us right with God. There's nothing we can do. We've blown it. And that's why, by removing that offense, that's why the Judaizers got a happy hearing in the churches. Our flesh is drawn to that kind of message. It's really easy to, um, we'll see this next week, to kind of misunderstand a bit about the flesh. Even the word, maybe it makes you think of kind of wild indulgence and excess. But that isn't really what it means. What it means is it's the old sinful nature, the old I that seeks to go its own way in independence from God. The motto of the flesh is, I'm in charge. And that might look like wild excess and indulgent. It depends what kind of person you are, what kind of situation you're in. The flesh can just as easily run to respectable legalism. I don't need to submit to God. I don't need, to, I don't need his help and handouts. I can do it myself. I am still in the driving seat that's why legalism is attractive, because Christianity is still it is about something that I am doing, and I'm still in control. So it's attractive, but it's slavery, and it's fatal in the end. And so this passage is asking us to make, or asking us to make Again, the embarrassing admission that we are utter failures on our own. We need the grace of Jesus and the help of his spirit within. And that's true for the start of the Christian life. And it's true for every other step along the way. It's an embarrassing admission, but it brings us into the glorious freedom of living as children in God's household 
and every day receiving and receiving and receiving. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would experience the glorious freedom we see described in this passage. Please teach us what it means to relate to you through Jesus and not to our own performance. Please help us to know what it is to be children in your household and not slaves. Lord, we pray that we would work and be transformed. But Lord, help us to know what it is to have that happen through your power within us and not our own effort. And Lord, we pray that we would give you the glory for that and not try to take that for ourselves. Please, Lord, would we be fully submitted to living a life of Jesus in us and through us. In his name, amen.